If you have your Bible with you today, would you join me in Psalm 124? If you don't have your Bible with you today, it's printed there on page 10 in your bulletin. We'll read both Psalms 124 and 125. The next two in what are called the Songs or Psalms of Ascent. This one by David. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us, then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. We pray for your spirit to work now with your word, Lord, in Jesus' good name. Amen. The natural way of seeing the world, as you know, is to see it as if it revolves around me, right? I mean, I'm looking at the world through my eyes, and so everything in this room is kind of like centered around me. That's just how we naturally look at the world. And as you know, any of you who knows who has raised a child, it is not easy to help someone learn that they are in fact not the center of the universe. And actually it is only God who can bring us fully awake to who is the center of everything. It doesn't feel right now like our world is revolving around the sun. It looks like the sun and moon are revolving around us. But just as it doesn't feel like the world revolves around the sun, it doesn't feel like everything in creation, everything in our lives revolves around God. But it is as true as it is true that our world revolves around the sun. God is the center of reality. And in what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, the history before Jesus came, this truth that God is the center, it was reinforced spatially because God had this city called Jerusalem where he put this ark. You guys have seen you know, the Harrison Ford films, the Ark of the Covenant, right? You know, it's this box, this chest that represents God's presence. And God put that in this city. Uh, King David put it in this city called Jerusalem. And three times a year, as we've seen, God's people were to go up, right? They were to go up from their lives, wherever they were, and they were to go up to Jerusalem to be with God in his city, in his house. And Psalms 120 through 134, they are songs of ascent. They are songs for going up. And these songs, as the pilgrims were making their physical way to the city of Jerusalem, they would sing these songs. And so in a way, the songs were kind of like a journey of the heart. They're meditating and thinking about things as they go up to the city, which is why we can still use these today, because our lives, you know, as God's people no longer revolve around some earthly city where God has put this sign of his presence. But 
our lives that revolve around God. And these songs, I think, are a God-given path, if you like, by which our hearts, our souls can go up toward God from the everyday earthly things that, you know, much of the time absorb us and frankly trouble us quite a lot. And, you know, we should care about these things, but we go up in our hearts toward God. Now, here we are in Psalms 124 and 125. I imagine, this is Ben Miller purely speculating, so take this or leave this, but I imagine that these pilgrims got rolling for Jerusalem, say, on an afternoon. And I imagine them chanting through the first four songs that afternoon and evening, 120, 121, 22, 23. And I imagine that Psalm 124 is the next morning. And there, you know, we kind of spent the night out on the open ground, we're a little bit stiff, we all get up, and this is the day when we're finally going to arrive at the city, arrive at Jerusalem. And we're all kind of shaking off, the, you know, the, the night, and it's story time. And we kind of get trudging off on the path to Jerusalem, and somebody starts, one little voice in the multitude, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. And then they kind of do the testify, y'all, let Israel now say, and the whole crowd roars, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. I almost was going to see if we could replicate this here, but I thought, nah, <laughs> Presbyterians. So somebody starts, and the crowd just roars, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. Psalm 124 is looking back at low places. Psalm 125 is looking ahead at high places. But we're going to start by looking back at some low places. This is a congregation, a multitude, a people. They have got stories to tell. If it had not been the Lord, it was on our side. And the basic theme of these stories is, man, it was a near thing. <laughs> but for God. And if you think about Israel's story, you know, it is utterly unbelievable that Israel still exists. I mean, can you imagine a story of a people who've had more near escapes from vastly superior enemies? How really did Jacob escape the hatred of Esau? I mean, if it had not been the Lord, it was on his side. How, did Joseph, how was Joseph not murdered by his brothers? These guys were absolute scoundrels. How did the slaves possibly Escape from Egypt, how were they not exterminated in Egypt as Pharaoh's just chucking baby boys into the Nile? If it had not been the Lord who was on our side. How did the tribes of Israel survive in the time of the Judges? If you guys remember the book of Judges, there's this one, just one story where these people called the Midianites, hostile, mean enemies of Israel, it's said that they came up into the land of Israel like locusts. They and their camels could not even be counted. And Israel's just this disorganized rabble of tribes. How did they survive if an up in the Lord, the early kingdom? See, David wrote this psalm. How did David, how was he not killed by Saul, his insane father-in-law, who was the king? How did David's kingdom survive the Philistines? As they, the Philistines were bad. And they swarmed into Israel. How did, how they, how did they not just crush them? And, and you know, the story goes on. You know, we can talk about later history. The, the Syrians from the north in the time of Elijah and Elisha. Later, the Assyrians. I mean, talk about a war machine. The Assyrian Empire. And beyond them, the Babylonians. I mean, it's just, if it had not been the Lord, it's interesting in uh, verses 4 and 5, uh, they the pilgrims, they depict their experiences as a nation like raging floodwaters in these gulches or 
canyons that were call, called wadis, W-A-D-I. And so the thing in an arid land like Israel, some of you have been there, is that it's really obviously dry. And so you go down often when you're camping, uh, you're, you're traveling, you go down in the wadi, you go down in the, in the gully because there's, there's water down there. The only problem is if you're camping down there and some storm up in the mountains cuts loose a bunch of rain, uh, you will have these rushing floodwaters that will sweep down into the valley and fill the wadi and just blow you and everything else out of the canyon. And that's how they picture these enemies coming against them. Um, Isaiah, actually, in his prophecy, s says of Sennacherib, one of the major Assyrian warlords, he, he pictures him coming as floodwaters that reach to the neck. They also, in verse uh, 6 and 7, you'll notice they depict these enemies falling on them like snare nets. I don't suppose you guys have probably ever caught a bird in a snare net, but, you know, these constrictive nets fall upon the bird, and the more the bird beats and tries to escape, the more caught in the net. That's how it was for, for Israel. And it's interesting, actually, outside the Bible, Sennacherib left some annals that have been discovered by archaeologists, and one of the things he says about his battles with Hezekiah in Jerusalem was that he shut Hezekiah into Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. And these pilgrims just testify, all that stood between us and utter ruin was that the Lord was on our side. There is no other explanation for why we're still here. And it is because of that that we were able to pass safely through these floods. The snare has been shredded and we've escaped. But now I want to ask you guys this. What does any of that have to do with you? I doubt you've ever met a Philistine. I think I might have met a Philistine or two, but there we are. Most of you have never met an Assyrian. Like, it's just very hard to relate to this. And actually, if this psalm, if this pilgrim song is just about the national enemies of ancient Israel, then there's no obvious way that we can sing this song. It's their song, not ours. But I want to remind you guys of something. In the Bible, in the Bible, Israel is not just a nation. It's not just one more little nation, political unit in the ancient Near East. Abraham's family is God's answer to Adam's plight, right? You understand that? This nation we call Israel in the Bible, Abraham's family is God's answer to the whole mess that Father Adam left us. Sin and everything sin has brought with it. In light of that, it is interesting that these pilgrims in Psalm 124, they do not ever mention a single national enemy of Israel. There's no Philistines here, no Assyrians, no whatever. When they identify the source of these floods and snares that they have experienced. Do you know what Hebrew word they use in verse 2? If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when blank rose up against us, do you know what the Hebrew word there is? It's Adam. You should write that in your Bible, A-D-A-M. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when Adam rose up against us. Now, Adam, from that we get the, the name, Adam. <clears throat> Adam is just a Hebrew word that means man or human. And so this could just mean generically when humans or people rose up against us. And my English Bible has that translation, when people rose up against us. But as you know, for, for thoughtful Israelites who knew their Bibles well, there is a much, much, much deeper echo when you hear Adam. Adam is not just, you know, homo, homo sapiens. Adam is man opposed to God. It is man at war with God. 
it is man that has a problem not ultimately with Israel, but with God. That's Adam. And I think you could probably read this psalm as saying this, our lives have been flooded and snared by man at war with God. That's relatable. Can I ask you guys something? I want you to think about your lives right now. What in your life right now is making you feel overwhelmed? I don't mean, you know, sort of everyday inconveniences. I mean stuff that is making you feel overwhelmed, like I am drowning. This is unbearable. What in your life is making you feel trapped? I am stuck in something that is killing me and I cannot make it stop. Whatever it is, if you think about it carefully, you will find every single one of those things at some level goes back to human sin. Every one of those overwhelming and snaring things that you experience, at some point you will find it can be traced to the fact that human beings have refused to love and to serve God. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes the things that overwhelm or snare our lives, they are the direct effects of sin. I mean, persecution for Christians would be one. If you're in, like, say, Iran or North Korea, and people are trying to hunt you down and kill you because you name the name of Jesus, that is an obvious analogy to what's going on in this text. That is a flood. That is a snare falling upon you. People hating you because you follow God. That's pretty obvious. That's a direct effect of human war with God. In our society, probably not likely to get carted off to a gulag or anything, but there's just contempt. And being on the receiving end of just sort of mockery because you're so stupid as still to hold on to all that old, you know, superstitious stuff. That's a, that can be overwhelming at times, especially when it's kind of sweeping through an entire culture. But even things that are not directly aimed at us because we're Christians are still the direct effects of sin in our lives. Some of you are living in the middle of horrible injustices. I was talking with a sister this week things that just are so wrong and you just they're just causing your life to feel like you're walking in wet concrete you're just being swept along by things that are just heartbreakingly unjust or sometimes it's not so much things people do to us it's things they leave undone it's you thought this person was in your corner you thought that they were you know going to have your back and suddenly you are betrayed or you were just dropped or whatever and it can be over you know in, in the heart it can be overwhelming it can feel like you've just had a net dropped on you these are direct effects of adam but sometimes it's indirect effects of man's sin you know I've, i sometimes watch predator documentaries and there's this moment when a cat of prey goes after a gazelle or a wildebeest out in the savannas of Africa when they, they get their teeth in for the first time. And the animal is still fighting and still lives for a long time, but the, it, it's, there's a problem because now the teeth are in you and you're being slowly dragged down to death, much like the description here. We were in their teeth. And some of you know what it's like over the course of your life. When you're young, you, you, you know, you do fine, but over the course of your life, do you not, some of you older ones, start to feel like you were just being slowly dragged down by the sheer decay of the world? This gets accelerated if you're ever in the teeth of a life-threatening disease. Speaking with a sister about this recently, when all of a sudden you realize you are mightily mortal. Death is coming for you, and it's coming faster than you thought. All of us should have moments when you feel powerless in the jaws of that ultimate enemy that Paul talks about, which is only with us because of Adam, death itself. It's interesting, Jonah, when he's thrown off the boat, 
He's sinking down to die in the Mediterranean. He describes his death experience this way. He says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And sometimes that's just a slow drag of disease and decay and death. It's punctuated by disasters. Again, not necessarily direct effects of sin, but just indirect kind of miseries and and disasters that are in the world because of sin. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, like fish taken in an evil net, like birds caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I had moments in the COVID days when I felt like I was in a snare. My life trapped in something I had never foreseen and just wanted to end, and there was no way to make it end. And all of these direct and indirect effects of sin, they're all traceable to Adam, floods and snares. And the question then is, how shall we live? How shall we live as God's people in these floods and snares? It's important to pause and notice that the pagans outside of Israel actually developed an answer to that question. So people that were not in Israel at all, didn't know Israel's God, didn't care. They developed an answer. How do, you, how do human beings live in the face of the overwhelming floods and the devouring snares that have been unleashed by Adam? And this pagan answer actually is still with us today. It's actually increasing in popularity right now. And the pagan answer to the floods and snares unleashed by Adam was you need to look within yourself right here, right now. You need to develop the mental and physical strength to face the floods of life, to face the snares of death. Above all, that constant specter that death is coming for you, you need to be able to face all of that with mental strength, with physical strength, bloody but unbowed. That was the pagan answer. Luke Ferry, in his really wonderful book, A Brief History of Thought, describes what pagan philosophy said to to human beings living in the floods and snares of Adam, this is what pagan philosophy, various pagan philosophies, ultimately gave as their answer. Like religion, he says, pagan philosophy also claims to save us. Right, so religions look at the stuff that Adam has unleashed and they have an answer. Well, philosophy also had an answer. They had their own version of how to be saved. If not from death itself, then philosophy claims to save us from the anxiety that death causes. And to do so by the exercise of our own resources and our innate faculty of reason. All pagan philosophies, he says, promise us an escape from primitive fears. Grow up, kind of, right? These philosophies possess in common with religions the conviction that anguish prevents us from leading good lives. See, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a preacher, I'm a religious preacher, right? And I understand that your lives, anguish, fear of death is gonna keep you from living a good life. Well, philosophers outside of any religion, they also understood that, that anguish will keep you from living a good life. Anguish, says Ferry, stops us not only from being happy, anguish stops us from being free. We can neither think nor act freely when we're paralyzed by the anxiety provoked by fear of the irreversible. The question becomes one of how to persuade humans to save themselves. Salvation must proceed not from an other. That's religion. It must proceed well and truly from within by utilizing our own resources, by means of reason alone, with boldness and assurance. And so the solution of the pagans 
the solution that they offered to the plight of Adam was more Adam. And you'll notice these pilgrims have a totally different answer from the pagans. How do these pilgrims tell us to live amid the floods and the snares that have been unleashed by human sin? Their answer is not look within yourself. Their answer is look to the story of our people. Recall way beyond the limits of your little story how God has worked for his people, how God has taken our side against the power of human sin that would have absolutely washed us away if the Lord had not been our side. Remember, beyond your little story, how God quenched the flood of Pharaoh, how he broke the snare of Sennacherib, how he drew the venom of the serpent himself, yes, how he broke the bands of death. Brothers and sisters, remember how in this story at its climax, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in our flesh, he went all the way to the very bottom of the raging floodwaters of death itself and all that Satan had poured out to destroy humankind, and he, 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 he descended to the very bottom of that, into the very depths of that snare of death, and then he walked out of the snare. And he walked on that floodwater, and he broke the power of human sin. That is the thundering lesson of the story of our people. Our help, our help is in the name of the Lord. Amen? The God of Jacob is our refuge. That is what we say to ourselves. We are still here because the Lord has been on our side. And this is wonderful because it takes you out of your little story. I have days, I had a, day, a week like this week. It doesn't feel like God is taking my side. You ever have weeks like that? You're just feeling the flood. You're feeling the snare. You're stuck. You're drowning. It doesn't feel like God is taking my side. But there is no denying that God has taken our side. Yes? And that's where we put our feet down. That is the answer of the pilgrims. Our help is in the name of the Lord. He kept us through the flood. And that is what carries Christians through persecution that you might never actually in this world escape from through injustices, through losses and miseries, and finally death itself. What carries you through that, please, is not stoic toughness. And is not even just reliving God's work on our own personal experience. I mean, my story's limited. I've got some stuff in my life that God has clearly done, but what helps me is to get beyond my story to what God has done for us. And what gets us through these things in this world is faith that is rooted ultimately in everything God has done for us men and for our salvation. So as part of his people, I don't just have my story to go on. Our help is the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. And the beautiful thing is that story of our people has a future. We've looked back at some low places. But Psalm 125 looks ahead at some high places. So we turn a little corner here. I'll be, try to be briefer. And as the pilgrims now have been singing God's help in their past, looking back to these low places, remembering the Lord, now Jerusalem comes into view and they can see the city. This is kind of hard to picture when you live on Long Island, but Jerusalem was elevated up on a mountain. Uh, I think roughly 2,400 feet, maybe Sal and Kalen, some of you others uh, could tell me if I got this right, roughly 2,500 feet and above sea level. There's Jerusalem up there, the old city on top of this mountain, and what's interesting is kind of ringed around behind it, it's, it's ringed by higher mountains. So it's a mountain surrounded by mountains. And just like in prior psalms that we've been looking at, those features of the physical terrain speak to these pilgrims. 
they see that stuff and it talks to them. And that soaring panorama as they're walking toward the city of the, the city on the hill and then the higher hills around it, that soaring panorama is for them actually a shadow of a much greater reality. And that much greater reality has implications not just for Israel's future, but actually for the future of the world. Now, you and I are modern realists, right? We think of ourselves as very realistic in the modern world. We've thrown off a lot of stupid shackles from the past. And if you and I were called in, you know, if the Pentagon existed in, uh, in this time, centuries before Christ, and you know, a bunch of analysts sat around in a boardroom, and we were going to assess as modern people, you know, teleported back in history, we were going to analyze this nation's future. Given international conditions at the time, what is Israel's likely future, right? What are their chances? Well, a very crucial factor for us, modern realists, would be that their capital city is elevated up on this rock-solid height. That's a really good thing. And it is surrounded by a natural fortress. And so we'd all sit around the boardroom and nod and, and say, yeah, you know, this is, this is good stuff. This place is virtually impregnable. In fact, the people who owned Jerusalem before David took it over thought it was impregnable. They thought that, lime, that lame and blind people could defend Jerusalem. It was that impregnable. And that's how we would think in the modern world. And if some poor sap around that table were to say, well, should we maybe, as we think about their future, consider their religious beliefs, like, you know, who their God is, what they believe religiously? You know, we moderns would pat that person on the head and send them for a psych evaluation, and that'd be that. Because that is all irrelevant to a real-world assessment. But the pilgrims see that physical impregnability, and that for them is not the reality. That is actually the shadow. Because again, Abraham's family is not just a nation. They're not just a political unit with a military. This city and this people, this is God's restoration plan for the entire world. This is where God is solving the plight of Adam. This city, we've seen in earlier Psalms, this is where God is restoring life in the midst of sin and death. The very existence of this city, the very existence of this people rests upon the fact that God has made promises to them and he surrounds them with his care. That's the reality of which the physical mountains are just the shadow. Because the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity and cannot be moved is in her midst, she will not be moved. And that is what grounds, in verse 3 of, chapter, uh, of Psalm 125, that's what grounds this insanely bold claim about the future. The scepter of wickedness will not rest on the land that God has given to the righteous. If what is permanent about Israel is her God, his presence, his plan, his care, his kingdom, if that's what's permanent, then any dominion, any rule by the wicked in Israel is necessarily temporary. God cannot be dethroned. I mean, the best efforts of the serpent, the best efforts of sinners notwithstanding, sinners in Israel, sinners outside of Israel, all of their efforts notwithstanding, God cannot be dethroned. He will break the scepter of the wicked. He will put his enemies under his feet. He will do it. That is a permanent reality. And it's interesting how the righteous are able to hold on to that. They're able to keep singing. The scepter of the wicked will not rest on God's land. They keep singing that through centuries and centuries of wicked rule. When it's obvious the wicked are in charge, 
In fact, it's so bad that at the end of verse three, we're told it's possible after a while the righteous might be tempted to stretch out their hands to do wrong. You know, there comes a point you're so tired of the wicked ruling, you wanna be a revolutionary and turn to violence, or you just wanna blend in, stop swimming against the tide, just, you know, be a part of the, be a part of the wicked. It's just easier. But they hold on to, the, to what is sure about the future because God. How did they keep singing this after the physical city was destroyed? I try to imagine the exiles coming back and that city up on the hill, it's been reduced to, to, to rubble. And they keep singing this promise because they knew that God who cannot change, he would shorten these days for the sake of his elect and he would do something about the scepter of the wicked. Can I ask you guys a question? Are we still waiting for the fulfillment of verse three? Are we still waiting for God to remove the scepter of the wicked from the land that he's given to the righteous? I wish I could be sure you all give the right answer. No, we're not waiting for God to fulfill this promise, beloved. We are not we're still waiting for this. Do you guys remember Psalm 2, that two-panel door into the, into the book of Psalms, Psalms 1 and 2? You remember Psalm 2, as the doors of the Psalms open? David hears God laughing, and God is laughing because the peoples and nations of the earth are like shouting at the heavens, brandishing their spears and swords. We will not serve you, God. We will not serve your anointed. And God is just laughing. Why is he laughing? Because he's given these nations to his son, whom he says, I have set as my king on Mount Zion. And later David will say to this anointed son these words in Psalm 110, Yahweh, the God of Israel, Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And Psalm 2 tells us that those who kiss this son when God gives him the scepter, if you kiss the son, you'll be blessed. But if you don't kiss the son, you will perish. You'll be driven away like chaff. You'll be led away, as verse 5 says here, you'll be led away with the evildoers. And so our reality now, brothers and sisters, is from the day Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, sat down at the Father's right hand, every earthly scepter is now subject to his scepter. The rulers of this world rule at his good pleasure alone. And if they defy him, and many still do, if they insist on oppressing where Jesus is liberating, if they insist on crushing where Jesus is lifting up, if they insist on harming where he is healing, if they insist on defiling where he is cleansing, they will be dashed in pieces like a potter's vessel. You should write in the margins of verse three, Matthew 28, 18, Jesus saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. I am now the king. I now hold the scepter. That is our reality. And so now as God's people, how do we sing this psalm? Well, like the pilgrims, we lift up our hearts, but we're not lifting our hearts up to a city where God's ark sits. We're lifting up our hearts now to the throne where his son sits. I think this must be what Paul has in mind when he says in Colossians 3, set your minds on things above where Christ sits. Lift up your hearts. And those who trust in the son of God, they are like Mount Zion, which just cannot be moved. The kingdom of Jesus, the son of God, it is an everlasting kingdom. We understand that. And so we just have this unshakable, immovable, solid hope for our own hearts, our own lives where he rules and for the peoples and nations of the earth over whom he rules. In fact, it's interesting that you know the prophet Daniel, you remember, 
Daniel pictures the reign of God's son, the Messiah, as this little stone that shatters and blows away all other kingdoms, and it grows into this great mountain, and that mountain fills the whole earth. That's the future. That's what we're living in right now. In fact, what's happening here today is an evidence that Jesus is doing exactly that. So the help in our past, the hope in our future, it's all the Lord. And let me just wrap up by just drawing attention to the very last phrase, so peace be upon Israel. Peace be upon Israel. Can I say something a little bit bold to you guys? You know what I see when I look at a lot of you? Not all of you by any means, but a lot. I see lives that are riddled with insecurity. Just riddled with insecurity. I see it in what you chase to try to deal with that insecurity. You know, it's easy to kind of focus on the almost cartoonish insecurity of high schoolers, let's say. The stupidity to which they will sink as they chase admiration online to fill the hole. To chase influence online to fill the hole. To try to be somebody who matters because somehow being a child of God is not enough. But are we adults really that much better? You chase too. It is so important to some of you to be impressive. It's just written all over your life. What are you trying to fill inside of you? The need for control. I get it. Some of you just have to have control. You're willing to destroy your most intimate relationships to have control. It's insecurity. That's what it is. The need to be comfortable. The need to pad your life from anything that might cause problems. Just, it's insecurity. Trying to somehow make the future smooth by your own efforts. It's just insecurity. I can see it in what unsettles you. Maybe you're not a particularly vigorous, chasing sort of person, but I can see what, what unsettles God's people. I know when you're rattled. I know when you're just like, stuff has really thrown you. And there's stuff that makes us feel really, really thrown in this world. It's insecurity. And the thing is about insecure people, when we're insecure, we're not free to do good. You know why? We become very relationally small when we're insecure. And the reason for that is because insecurity is always going to make you demanding because you've got to have something to fill that need, something to insulate you. It makes you demanding or it makes you defensive. You're just always trying to like block and hold off things that could you know, cause trouble. You can't love freely when you're trying to fill yourself. You can't love freely when you're trying to insulate yourself. You just can't. It doesn't work. And this psalm, these two psalms tell us that Zion dwellers, beloved, have peace. They have peace that the world cannot give. If you know God, he is your father, then you have this internal core of strength. Your feet are steady. You have actually joy, and it doesn't really matter so much what your personal circumstances are or what the world's circumstances are. Some of you are so rattled by stuff going on in the world. It's insecurity. You know God. Your help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. 
And because our help and our hope are from the Lord, it gives peace. And when you have God's peace, instead of being a person who's just kind of scraping together things to fill you or trying to block things, you know, insulate yourself from things that might hurt you, it opens you up when you have peace to stop living for you, right? You don't need to live for you because God's got you. You're settled on Him. He surrounds you with His care, and then you can start living for Him. You can let go of your self-protective armor, as Lewis says. You can stop chasing stuff to fill your empty heart because your heart is filled and you can do all the good that you can. In the very brief time God has given you under the sun, in the name of your everlasting king, beloved, that's what I pray for you. That's what I pray for me. God grant us as a church peace. Peace be upon Israel. Amen. Give us your peace, Lord. In Jesus we pray. Amen.